Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a park in Amarillo, Texas, there's a pot of gold of sorts. It's inside a stainless steel sculpture with three arms that form a tripod on the ground and another that stretches 60 feet up into the sky. The Helium Centennial Time Columns Monument was erected in 1968 to mark the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the gas. Each of the arms contains a time capsule to be opened a certain number of years after the monument's dedication. It's in the last arm that the treasure lies. A thousand years on from 1968, it'll be unlocked and, along with some mementos and historical documents, the Texans of the future will find a passbook to a bank account. In 1968, $10 were put into that account. In 2968, that's expected to be worth something in the region of one quadrillion dollars. The Texans of today don't necessarily need to wait a millennium to strike it rich, though. Their state is booming. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's behind the Texan boom? Texas is on a roll. People and companies are flocking to the Lone Star State. It's an energy pioneer, leading the nation in oil and gas production, but also, perhaps more surprisingly, in renewables like wind and solar. Its size means it has a significant say in national politics, and its coffers are full, in part due to an influx of federal money. What lessons are there from Texas for the nation? With me this week to talk about the Texas boom and what's going right and what's going not so right in the Lone Star State are Charlotte Howard in New York and, drumroll, Alexandra Switchbass coming to us from Dallas. Alexandra has just written a big piece about the Texas boom in The Economist and a leader. And so we're really excited to have her for this episode. Alexandra, how are you doing? What's going on in Dallas at the moment? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm excited to be here living, living the Texas dream. And Charlotte, how are things in New York? I am on Trump indictment watch with everyone else. We're recording this on Thursday, so we'll see how the news evolves. But New York has been a center of some of the investigations into Donald Trump and his business dealings and various criminal matters related to the Trump organization. So it's interesting to see that finally come to a head. Yes, there are lots of people trying to make themselves instant experts on the Manhattan DA and its offices inner workings. Well, if that does happen, then we will cover that soon. But this week, we're going to be talking about Texas. Alexandra, as I mentioned, 
wrote this big piece recently. She spoke to Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, for it. Alexandra, I'm going to sort of hand over the keys to this episode to you as you're our resident Texan, Texas expert. Can you begin by describing the scale of the economic boom in Texas at the moment and, and how it looks like from where you're sat in Dallas? Yes, I'll start by pointing out the obvious to all of our listeners who are close watchers of American politics and Texas in particular by saying that Texas is probably the most polarizing state in the country. And it either represents everything that you think is right with America, like a sense of optimism and growth and love of capitalism, or everything that's wrong with it, like very conservative interventionist politics on social issues, a lack of a social safety net, and the like. But in this episode, what we're going to be talking about and what I've been thinking a lot about is the economy and the boom that we're seeing there. And it's multifaceted. It's, we're seeing a huge boom in population, a huge boom in companies moving. We're seeing an energy boom. And then we're also seeing a huge amount of federal money coming into Texas. And I'm based in the Dallas area and a lot of my reporting has been in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And that is really ground zero for where we're seeing a lot of the influx of companies and population. A good place to go see the booms that are happening in Texas right now is Alliance, just north of the city of Fort Worth. The best way to get a sense of Alliance's Texas-sized vastness is from above. From my vantage point in a helicopter flying on a windy, bumpy day, the urban sprawl stretches into the horizon. Alliance is a master-planned mixed-use development that spans 27,000 acres, which is about 42 square miles, and two counties around Fort Worth. There's the airport, a major logistics hub, home to regional bases for Amazon and FedEx. Nearby are data centers, some owned by Meta, better known as Facebook, and powered by solar energy. There are retail outlets, restaurants, and offices. 560 companies are based in Alliance, employing 66,000 people. And Alliance is growing. If you go out to Alliance today, you see thousands of construction workers you know, they're building houses, they're building warehouses, they're building shopping centers. My pilot was the Dallas-based businessman, Ross Perot Jr., a helicopter enthusiast in his spare time. His day job is a real estate developer. Alliance is one of his most famous projects. Back on the ground, he gave me a taste of a typical day at Alliance. You see thousands of trucks every day coming and going to the intermodal yard. You have 10 major of freight trains coming off the West Coast, hitting Alliance every day. We have 300 aircraft take off and landing. About 30 freighters are coming in and out every day. Uh, we have thousands of children going to school every day. And so it, it is a very rich, full community with every type of real estate that you would want in this part of the United States. The financial firm Charles Schwab moved its headquarters to Alliance from San Francisco, one of at least 139 firms to move to Texas since 2020. Perot says one of the reasons so many companies are moving here is because it's such an easy place to do business. We built, we had two, two big air hubs for Amazon, and we, we, we broke ground in Alliance and had it basically done before we could almost break ground in California because it's so difficult uh, to get permission to build in California. 
Now we do, we have, we've developed in California since the nineties and we have great teams in California and we've done well in California. But as I mentioned, you know, if you're not big and you can't push through that bureaucracy, it's a difficult place to work. And so the smaller developer has a tough time in California. And we, we still do major deals out there, but it, it takes a lot of work compared to a state like Texas where things happen a lot quicker. Companies bring jobs, and jobs bring people. In the year to June 2022, 470,000 people moved to the state. That's about as many as live in Atlanta, Georgia. When I was uh, growing up as a kid, Texas had a population of 10 million people. We now exceed 30 million people in population. Texas is adding more people than any other state. I met Governor Greg Abbott at the state capitol in Austin. In the entrance to his office, displayed proudly behind the reception desk, are about a dozen trophies awarded to Texas by a corporate magazine that deemed it the best state to do business. Governor Abbott cites small government, the lack of income tax, and low cost of living as part of what's drawing people south. Texas has always been a place of opportunity, regardless of whether or not you were born here or you were just seeking it from wherever you may have come from. In Texas, you can come here and know that if if you work hard, apply yourself, you do have the opportunity to succeed. And Texas is, is made of many people who started with absolutely nothing and went on to become enormously successful. So we, we, we believe in certain values that protect that opportunity, such as less government, letting you keep more of what you earn, so you're, there's a remunerative reward for what you have done. More freedom in your life and what you do, what you choose to do. People like those value sets. California is still America's most populous state. But if current trends persist, Texas will eclipse it at some point in the 2040s. The boom in Texas is happening. The question is how the state can make the most of it and how long it will last. So, Alexandra, you talked about the boom there, but in your piece for The Economist, you say that Texas is really seeing four related booms, and that's why what's happening is happening on such a grand scale. So could you unpack that a little bit for us, please? Yes. I think the most visible ones that you see on a day-to-day basis as a resident of Texas is new people arriving and then new companies arriving. And you heard from both Ross Perot and Governor Greg Abbott about why they think that's happening. But it's some combination of the lack of state income tax, the business-friendly environment, uh, lack of permitting and red tape that you see in the state. Uh, And then you also see two other booms that are really worth watching and will be very significant for Texas and the country. One is the energy boom, and the other is the influx of federal money that we see coming into Texas, although Texas's politicians were largely opposed to some of the big packages we saw coming out of Washington over the last couple of years. uh, The result is that Texas is going to be a major beneficiary of that federal money. 
I think why it's pretty noteworthy, there's two reasons to look at what's happening to Texas. The first is that a lot of people who think that this is a temporary phenomenon of people and companies moving here, I think, are going to be wrong. I think this is going to be a very sustained growth that Texas is going to see. And the second reason is that it's really significant to the country. So as you see the nation's population growth flag, what happens in Texas really matters to the rest of the country, both from a demographics perspective and then also from an economic perspective. And that's why we wanted to look very closely at Texas this week. Charlotte, the bit of Texas's economic boom that's perhaps best known by outsiders is the energy boom there, which is something you've covered for The Economist in the past. Why does Texas have such a big energy boom? Is it purely a question of kind of fortunate geology? It largely is. And I know people in Texas will take issue with that. But when you're fracking, what you're doing is you're not just drilling down, but you're combining uh, the practice of fracturing, which is kind of blasting oil out of thin layers of rock using sand and water and chemicals with horizontal drilling. So you can drill not just down, but miles sideways, literally. And Texas is lucky enough to have really plentiful oil reserves, but in particular in West Texas in the Permian Basin, which people may have heard of, it's just a vast, vast resource. And so if you think about the Permian, I like to think about it as sort of a geological milfoy where you have layers and layers of oil over each other. And so what Texans have been able to do is keep on tapping that with fracking technique that continues to improve. And that last part is really crucial because there have been these booms and busts in Texas. I remember being in Midland once when a hotel room at one of these cinder block hotels that is very no frills would cost $400 a night and there'd be no housing for oil workers such that the hotel left out something called a booty butler to help Texas oilmen cover their boots and not track mud into the hotel. Just really really sort of these really high points as well as busts when the oil price has gone down and fracking became uneconomic. And what you see now in Texas, particularly in the past two years, but going forward are two things. One is sustained desire for American oil, which in practice really does mean Texan oil because the Permian is such a huge resource. And you have more discipline among the companies that are fracking in West Texas. So there's been consolidation among companies where you have super majors acquiring smaller frackers. And then you also have frackers themselves who are being a bit more disciplined under investor pressure, not to sort of go all out when the oil price is high, but be a bit more disciplined in their drilling. And at the same time, you've had productivity continue to improve. So the length of one of these horizontal wells has gotten much, much longer in the past decade. The average length of a well is more than 10,000 feet in 2022. That's about three kilometers or nearly two miles, more than double what it was about a decade ago. So you think about the productivity gains, the sort of maturing of the fracking industry combined with what remains a really incredible resource in Texas. And that has helped to maintain Texas's role as an energy provider Uh, particularly as countries in Europe look beyond Russia to more stable sources of energy. And then the other irony, of course, is that Biden has inadvertently boosted Texas's primacy in American oil by um, his policies about limiting new drilling, um, especially on federal land. Texas has become all the more important. And then the other thing to point out is that although its reputation is as you know, the leading oil and gas producer in America, it is also a leader in renewables. And so it's the largest producer of wind energy. It's adding solar at the fastest pace of any state. And so 
although it is best known as the oil and gas capital of America, it is also, oddly, the green capital of America in many ways. And that's also something that Joe Biden has turbocharged, right, with federal money in the IRA. That's exactly right. Uh, Texas is going to be a major beneficiary of uh, all the federal money that's coming in and the Inflation Reduction Act, which invests in clean energy projects, is going to help turbocharge Texas's growth in that area. One thing I would add about the energy piece is even though Texan energy remains hugely important to the state's economy and hugely important to its ability not to have an income tax, right, because of the royalties and taxes provided by drilling, Texas is not the state, not even close to the state, that's most dependent on fossil fuel revenues. That distinction belongs to Wyoming, North Dakota, uh, Alaska. Texas has a much more diverse economy. And so I think that's something both worth noting that Texan oil remains hugely important, but also that Texas can't be caricatured as a simple oil and gas state, which I think is part of the point of what makes Alexandra's coverage on the state so interesting. Okay, we'll go back to look at how a previous Texas boom ended abruptly in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. I thought there were loads of good things in this week's issue of The Economist. Somebody pointed out to me that I don't often talk about the US stories, which I edit every week. But just to single out one, this week's Lexington column, which is by James Bennett, on what Iraq, the Iraq war, did to America on the 20th anniversary of that invasion is really, really strong. There was one particular passage that stood out to me. He writes, pick a sorrow from the millions that ensued. An Iraqi child who lost both parents to an American missile, a man standing on a box in the American's Abu Ghraib prison with a sack over his head and his arms spread, wires twisting from his fingertips. An American veteran who cannot stop drinking, cannot sustain a relationship, cannot sit without his back to a wall. Anyone is enough to make you wish you could run back down the hall of history, calling on Mr. Bush to stop. It's a really strong column. So do go read it if you have a subscription. If you don't, then we've got a 30-day trial on at the moment. Economist.com slash podcast offer is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Six walnut armchairs, a monogrammed egg timer, and a washing machine. Over four days in January 1988, the possessions of a lifetime were sold in a Houston auction house. Their former owner sat in the hall, watching it all happen, a few tears at one point slipping down his cheek. For John Connolly, it had been an almighty fall. For much of the 1960s, Connolly was governor of Texas, From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died some 38 minutes ago. On that Dallas morning in 1963, he was sat just in front of John F. Kennedy in the presidential limousine. When I felt an impact as if someone hit me with a a closed fist right in the middle of my back, the force was strong enough to where it knocked me over, and I, I saw that I was covered with blood. So, frankly, I thought I had been fatally hit. Connolly was badly injured, but he recovered. A close ally of Lyndon Johnson, he served another two terms as governor, then switched parties and headed to Washington as Treasury Secretary in the Nixon administration. Since beginning his campaign for the Republican nomination for president, 
John and Nellie Connolly especially cherish those rare, quiet moments when they can be together to talk about family matters. In 1980, he ran an unsuccessful campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, spending $12 million of his own money and capturing one delegate. With nowhere left to go in politics, Connolly turned to business. There was a lot of money sloshing around the state in those days, and the Texans who got rich in the oil boom often put their dollars in property. Hoping to cash in, Connolly set up a real estate investment firm. But then the price of oil crashed, and so did Connolly's business. He was liable for his firm's loans, and owing $49 million to his creditors, he declared bankruptcy. Yes, uh, it was a difficult decision. It's still a, a painful status in which uh, I find myself, but I've always tried to be a, a realist and a pragmatist, and there was nothing else I could do. And so there he was in January 1988, sat in the back of an auction hall, seeing his worldly possessions go under the hammer to help pay off his debts. A couple of years ago, after your bankruptcy, you said, don't worry, I'm going to make some more money in a couple of years. What's your situation? Well, I'm doing very, very well indeed. We have Connolly was one of the most high-profile casualties of the Texas bust. But it was a relatively soft landing for him. He still had enough money and contacts to recover. What is your business? Well, I'm doing a lot of consulting work now for a, a number of different companies. I'm still special counsel to the board and the executive committee of America General Insurance Company. I'm on the board of the Coastal Corporation. Many were not so lucky. Texas and Connolly had bet on one golden goose continuing to lay. The state learned a painful lesson from the 1980s oil shock. But its economy is much more diverse now. So, Alexandra, we've talked already about how the current boom in Texas is based on a more diversified economy than the 1980s boom, which came to such a spectacular end. One of the things that struck me reading your piece is how this boom is being reinforced by a huge population increase. To some extent, that's a question of natural population increase. There's also been some migration from outside the US, but a very, very large slug of that is Americans moving from other states to Texas. That's right. We're seeing a huge movement of people. A lot are coming from California and other blue states to Texas. And I would like to make the point that, you know, Governor Abbott, in the conversation I had with him, pointed out that a lot of this has to do with the pull factors and Texas drawing people. There are also push factors. And a lot of Texas success from a migration standpoint has to do with what other states are doing wrong. And the long long lockdowns and policies that kept businesses closed a long time that moved several high-profile business people to the Texas area during COVID, um, the regulatory schemes, the tax schemes that we see kind of pushing people out. And so while this does have to do with a certain recipe for success that Texas has, it also has to do with the policies of blue states that are driving that migration. Alexandra, Texas obviously shares a border with Mexico. And I wonder if you can help me understand the degree to which immigration has been a, a positive force for Texas, whether it has helped to fuel the economic growth that we've seen in the state 
uh, or whether it is, as the governor would describe it, a huge problem and something to be managed. I've asked the governor about this in the past, uh, and he made the point to me that he is not anti-immigration. He is anti-illegal immigration. And, you know, that might get lost in some of the rhetoric around the border. But Texas hugely depends on immigration, both from other American states, but also importantly, to your question, foreign immigration. And the Texas economy also hinges on, you know, the outside world. Mexico is Texas's largest trading partner. And And so while right now we see a lot of headlines and a lot of concern about people coming over the border in a disorderly way and in an illegal way, and also not just people, but drugs and other contraband making their way into Texas and then the broader United States, Texas really does depend on people continuing to come into the state to fuel its growth. And I think the rhetoric from business people and the rhetoric from politicians is different on this issue. I think the border is kind of perceived to be a winning political issue for Republicans. Business people say that if they could change anything, they would like to change the immigration policy in America to make it possible for more foreigners to come to Texas to work because GDP growth depends on population growth and business people are all for it. I was looking at some data from the Dallas Fed, which always offers a succinct window into a given state's economy, um, the, the regional feds. But I was struck by some data that showed there was a higher unemployment rate in Texas and also more job creation, which suggests that there are more people in the labor force. So more people looking for jobs. It's just a sign of a healthier labor market, whereas in some states you have quite a low unemployment rate and employers can't find who they need because so many people have exited it permanently. That doesn't seem to be at all the phenomenon in Texas. And then I was struck by a different piece of data that suggests kind of a longer term problem, which is that many rural districts in Texas had shifted to a four-day school week because they couldn't find teachers. So it struck me that you might have kind of a short-term issue where because of migration, the labor market seems pretty healthy, but the long-term question of how to build up human capital in Texas does not seem answered to me. What do you think about that, Alexandra? I think your point is excellent. And there's a huge divide between the boom we're seeing in certain parts of Texas and especially kind of larger metro areas of Texas within the Texas Triangle, which is the Dallas-Fort Worth area, down to Austin and San Antonio and over to Houston. Um, and you see tremendous growth there. But then in a large part of Texas, you're not seeing the same growth and prosperity. And so it is already a very stratified society, and it's only becoming more so in Texas. The point about the Texas school week is a really important one and is going to be worth following in the coming months. Basically, as districts confront a teacher shortage, they're choosing to go down to four-day weeks and prolong the school day slightly. And of course, that's not a good recipe for learning for students. It's a horrible experience experience for parents who are working. And so I think that's an example of how sometimes in the state there is a tendency toward what the most economical, easiest choice is um, and not a hard choice. And the harder choice, of course, would be to combine school districts. Texas has over a thousand school districts. um, And so a lot of the functions are replicated. And so rather than hiring, you know, so many principals, so many college counselors, et cetera, it would be a lot easier to just combine forces. But that's, of course, not what school districts are 
politicians are choosing to do because it's unpopular. So, Alexandra, Texas schools, or at least Texas public schools, are one of the not great things about the state. In terms of educational achievement, they don't do so well. Texas also has a very high share of residents with no health insurance. It's got incredibly permissive gun laws, which, in my view, are not a great thing. And and it has a Republican Party that is in full culture war mode. I mean, if you look at the recent legislation that ensures parents of trans children who've had gender affirming care will get a visit from child protection services. You know, the politics of the state are really quite extreme. And yet, that doesn't seem to put people off moving there, right? It seems the draw of low property prices, low taxes is sufficient to override any concerns that transplants to Texas might have about its politics. The place where we did see some impact has been on Texas's extreme abortion law. It it has been one of the most extreme in the country. It bans abortion at the time a fetal heart rate is detected and makes no exceptions for rape or incest. And in the immediate wake of that passing, we saw some tech companies really struggle to recruit top engineering talent and executive talent from the Bay Area. Texas just had a very bad reputation after that. But it hasn't totally stemmed the flow. And outside of tech in Northern California, we're not seeing much of an impact from the abortion law. I think that there's a debate about what should happen um, as a result of some of these laws and what practically will happen. And I think a lot of people don't make their decisions about where to be based based on a political environment. And of course, Texas doesn't, besides sometimes garnering headlines and national attention, you know, people aren't following that in a day-to-day basis. They're making personal decisions based on where it's going to be best to be for their families, where it makes the most economic sense. And in some instances, in 470,000 instances in the last year, that was Texas. Okay, well, we'll be back in a moment to talk a bit more about how Texas's politics could threaten the state's boom or even prolong it. And we'll also hear some more from Texas's governor, Greg Abbott. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Alexandra, you mentioned earlier that a lot of federal money is coming into the state, which puts the governor, Greg Abbott, who often rails against Washington and against Joe Biden, in an unusual position. Yes, it's sometimes tricky for red state governors who benefit from a vast influx of federal money, but obviously are wary to credit Democrats for the success in their state. Texas's finances are in rude health. And in a moment, you'll hear me talk to Governor Abbott and the state's controller about that. But first, Governor Abbott and I talked about Texas's growing influence on the rest of the nation. Listen, Texas already has an outsized influence uh, on the United States, uh, ranging from the political influence that comes with the number of members of Congress, uh, the political influence that goes with the Electoral College, but also the influence where if 
Texas decides to go down a certain pathway, the rest of the United States uh, will go down that pathway. And What's so, an example of that? Uh, an, an example that we've seen, interestingly, in the investing area, in the economic area, and, and that is there's this concept of ESG that I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, ESG kind of exploded. There's been all these ESG funds. It's been a, uh, an investment paradigm, so to speak. And part of ESG pushed back on any investment in oil and gas. And we pushed back against that. We passed laws against that. Uh, so that if any business, including any finance firm, it discriminates against uh, the oil and gas sector, the state of Texas which now has a $2 trillion a year economy, we will discriminate back against those discriminating against our own gas firms. The way we do that is the, the largest finance firms you've ever heard of, you know, ranging from UBS, BlackRock, et cetera. BlackRock is blackballed in Texas from participating in our, our municipal finance market because they have blackballed the oil and gas sector. And, and what we've seen over just the past year, we've seen Vanguard pull out of being committed to ASG. So we'll be able to participate in investments in, te- in Texas, whether it be the, the state or uh, the pension systems or the municipal systems, whatever the case may be. So the, the, the financial might that we have is such that uh, it, it requires businesses to recalibrate, to adjust and to accommodate for Texas. Some say that federal money is a big part of what's going to supercharge growth in Texas in the next few years. Do you think that Texas should feel grateful for some of the programs that have come out of Washington? Well, give me some examples. I'm not so sure. So investments about. through the Inflation Reduction yeah, Act, okay. et cetera. And the answer is um, we will be strategic about it. Uh, one thing that uh, I've announced as governor and the state is working on, and that is we're not going to take any dollar that's offered by the federal government. I should make that clear. Just any dollar. We will look to see what strings are attached to those dollars and determine whether or not we want them. Easy example. And, and that is, uh, if, if we take some of those dollars, will requirements of those dollars require us to reduce what we're doing in oil and gas production? Uh, if that's the case, then we won't take the money. We're sitting on not only the largest budget surplus that Texas has ever had, the largest budget surplus in the country. Texas has a budget surplus of $32.7 billion. State Comptroller Glenn Hagar's job is to manage the state's finances. This is a historical moment. This is not a norm. We, we, we can't repeat. We will not expect this again. And, and in part, one of the faults that I make to frame that is we're here because of historical revenues the economy's outperformed anybody's expectation. You had an adrenaline shot in the chest. You ever seen a movie where someone, <gasps> they wake up, I mean, $300 billion of federal money that's just poured into your $1.8 trillion economy. And of course, some of that all hasn't been expended, but a huge portion of it has. So, I mean, that's just propped up everything in, in the U.S. overall economy. And then you have the tax economy, which is been growing at 1,000 to 1,200 people a day. Half of that is natural growth. Half of that are people that move here, uh, continuing to grow every single day. I mean, that's just astonishing. I do think Texas economy, you know, if you look at it 
one point to make, and this is just an astonishing number, I tell it all overall. I was trying to figure out how to frame some of this, and I was looking at the spreadsheets of all the revenues that we have in the Treasury. And so five times in the last 30 years, from one year to the next, we had a double-digit increase in revenues, and they increased those five times between 10 and 13%, so pretty healthy increase from one year to the next. Last year, when we were, were in the middle of a fiscal year, the one that we're in now compared to the prior one before that, it was 25.6% increase. So Charlotte, it was really interesting hearing Greg Abbott talk there about federal money and him saying that Texas wouldn't take any old federal dollar, but it's going to take a lot, right, under the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Bill. You wrote our last cover story on the effects of those federal investments. And one of the fascinating things, to me at least, is that politically, the Biden administration had or has this theory that essentially it can speed up America's green transition and make life better for left-behind workers and turn more voters from independents or even Republicans into Democrats through demonstrating the federal government's you know, largesse and ability to do big things. But in fact, if you look at the states that are going to benefit the most from the Inflation Reduction Act, plenty of them are solid Republican states like Texas. Yes, Texas clearly is going to be a big beneficiary. That's because it has not just ample resources for oil, but a lot of land on which you can build wind farms, as an example. It has really good geology for storing carbon. So all of the carbon capture uh, incentives are going to play out to great effect in Texas. It has various places within the state, as I mentioned, that are competing to be uh, hydrogen hubs. There's this $7 billion pot of money that was actually in the infrastructure law that they're seeking. You have Samsung, which has invested in an expansion of chip making in Texas, clearly with an eye to benefiting from federal subsidies. In my view, it's just simply disingenuous and factually incorrect to suggest that all these things would happen without the federal money. They just wouldn't. So that's that. I understand, though, why politically it's not sensible for Governor Abbott to give President Biden credit. And I think one of the things about the Inflation Reduction Act in particular, but this package of laws generally from Biden, is that they have a lot of goals. So increasing employment, decarbonizing, uh, boosting American innovation, boosting American manufacturing, all of these things are not necessarily aligned. And then the last piece, which you referenced, is gaining support for Democrats. I think that that might be the most elusive of all the various goals that the, the bills aim to advance. I just don't think that people draw a straight line between job creation in their community in this way and President Biden, particularly when they have a governor saying that they're not related. So I don't think that politically it will change much in Texas, but I do think substantively the economy of Texas will be changed by these programs. Charlotte, one of the other things Greg Abbott mentioned was his campaign against ESG investing, environmental, social governance investing. And Texas has maybe been the center of the backlash among Republican state legislatures against ESG. But I suppose you could take the view that Texas's budgetary position is so strong, it's got all these booms going for it, so many people are moving there. It can actually afford to do a few things that are somewhat business unfriendly like this. Yes, I think there's always a calculus that politicians make about what 
type of political performance is worth presenting, even if it doesn't have a huge impact. And I think the ESG stuff kind of falls into that. I guess that there's an impact in terms of the broader signaling to the market, but it's actually really tricky to figure out how to boycott different firms or what that means. I remember when they were first considering this, Texas hired a company called MSCI, which is a financial rating firm, and it looks at green investments. Uh, And Texas was hired them to help understand what type of companies it might boycott, except the problem is that MSCI itself is committed to carbon neutrality by 2040. So it's just an example of, it's just not straightforward. The law had lots of loopholes that companies can use to get around. I think this is is a an example of Texas doing something that does have a political impact, but it feels to me a bit more performative than substantive. What do you think, Alexandra? Yeah, but I think it's a performance that will get a lot of applause. I mean, basically by attacking ESG, you get a twofer. You're attacking Wall Street and New York financial firms, which are not popular at all in Texas, um, and you're attacking kind of coastal politics and woke politics also. And so I think it's kind of a win-win for Abbott. So, Alexandra, this is the big question, I guess. Do you think Texas's boom will endure, or do you think that some of the political problems, the way we see it at least, in the way Texas governs itself, could bring it to a premature close? I do think that Texas's boom will continue, but I do think that the state has many issues that it needs to grapple with. And the ESG debate is a really important one because it highlights the fact that Texas's leaders are often focused on issues that will rile up their base of primary voters and not necessarily the issues that are important for the long-term growth of the state. And so although the Although the governor and many of Texas's leaders do operate in a very pro-growth, business-friendly environment, I don't think that they necessarily operate like good long-term CEOs. CEOs would be investing in the future to ensure the endurance of their company and that it can continue to innovate and transition to new realities. And you see the Texan spirit of lack of investment, very light-touch regulation, uh, continuing in Texas, but potentially to the state's detriment in the future. A perfect example of that is the lack of the social safety net as it relates to healthcare. It has the highest share of uninsured children and adults in the country. That's not necessarily good if what you want is a healthy workforce who shows up to work. Uh, You also have real educational divides and problems, and the state is going to need to be very thoughtful about how it invests going forward to ensure that it's creating a skilled workforce for the future. And right now in Austin, the main educational debate you see is about whether or not to offer school vouchers. And that's not really as forward-looking and strategic as I think the state needs. So there are big questions about whether 10 to 20 years from now, the state is going to be making the investments and choices today that will position the state for success going forward. But in the near term, I think it's incredibly hard to argue with. I mean, Texas is going to be a major growth engine for the country um, and is going to do extremely well in the years ahead. Okay, Alexander. Well, thank you so much for taking us through all of that. Before I let you go, it's quiz time. And I should warn you in advance that Charlotte is currently on a hot streak. Uh Uh-oh. Also, Alexandra, just to add to the pressure, this week's quiz is Texas-themed. Question one. 
two presidents were born in Texas. Which two? George W. Bush and LBJ. You get a point for Lyndon Johnson. The other one was Dwight Eisenhower. Despite Mm. the Bush family being so closely associated with Texas, George H.W. Bush was born in Massachusetts and George W. was born in Connecticut, despite the accent. Eisenhower grew up in Kansas, but his family moved there from Texas when he was a baby. Mm. Question two. Under the dome of the state capitol in Austin are emblems of six flags representing the six nations, or so-called nations, that have claimed sovereignty over Texas. Can you name them? Hmm. Spain. Mexico. I'm sure Alexander knows this. Uh-huh, go ahead. I actually wasn't educated in Texas, so this, is, this will be borrowed knowledge from history books I've read. So I think Charlotte's right with Spain. Mexico... France, briefly, the United States, um, the Republic of Texas, and the Confederacy. Is that right? Oh, well done. You've got all six. Congratulations. You made a late run there. Well done, guys. Strong quiz performance. Well, thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nicola Rolfast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive, should you wish to, at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. And we really enjoy reading your emails from all over the world. So please do keep them coming in. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. 